Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hi, everyone. This episode will have spoilers about everything from Succession, including the series finale. So if you haven't watched the final episode yet, you're going to want to do that now. Obviously, I want it to be me. But I genuinely think anyone would say, anyone objectively would say, L.A., my my profile, experience, uh, position, desire, public pronouncements, it's me. If we want to hold on to this company, for us, for my kids, for yours, it's me. This is HBO's official Succession podcast. I'm Kara Swisher, and this week, everything ends. Guess who Kendall thinks it should be? It's gonna blow your fucking mind. Never had my plans read by a huge board meeting before. All right, wake up, zombies! Time to activate! Come on! Phones! I want to see some fucking phones! This week, we have a special two-part podcast to unpack the series finale of Succession because there's way too much to cover in one episode. So luckily, you get two. In part one, I am joined first by our new Swedish leader of Waystar, Alexander Skarsgård, and later, the incredible Jeremy Strong is back to discuss his character's ultimate fate and what Kendall really wanted all along. Later this week, part two, will have my extended conversation with director and executive producer Mark Mylod, who helped shepherd the perfect conclusion to this tragic family story, and also be sharing my own closing thoughts about these kids who just didn't get hugged enough. This finale, titled With Open Eyes, was of course written by series creator Jesse Armstrong. The episode starts with Kendall and Shiv at odds as they prepare for the board meeting that will decide Waystar's fate. Meanwhile, Roman is MIA. But in true succession fashion, they soon meet up in a beautiful place. This time, it's their mom's house in the Caribbean. Shiv learns that Matson has been playing her and isn't going to give her the top job. So she teams up with her brothers, and they agree to anoint Kendall as king. But of course, everything falls apart at the board meeting when Shiv can't bring herself to actually vote for Kendall, and she agrees to let the Gojo deal happen. In the end, Tom is crowned CEO, Shiv is relegated to CEO's wife, Roman is alone at a bar sipping a martini, and Kendall stares at the Hudson River with his dad's security guard looming nearby. Nobody wins. Well, they all make a lot of money. How else could it have ended? You are bullshit. You're fucking bullshit. Man, I'm fucking bullshit. She's bullshit. It's all fucking nothing. Man, I'm telling you this because I I know it, okay? We're nothing. 
Now I get to the man who's been creating chaos all season. He's a chaos monkey, as they say in Silicon Valley, but maybe he's played the game the best out of everyone. We're joined now by the new owner of Waystar Gojo, Alexander Skarsgård, who plays tech billionaire Lucas Matson. So happy to have you here, Elon. <laughs> I'm thrilled to be here, Kara. Thank you. Yeah. So your character came out on top. Congratulations. But I'd love to get an idea of who do you think you're playing here? Who who have you gotten your inspiration from? And I'm not kidding about Elon. Well, I'd say that Lucas is kind of an amalgamation of a couple of different tech billionaires and some eccentric public figures out there. I've drawn inspiration from quite a few of them and I've tried to steer clear of playing a carbon copy of one you mentioned Elon Musk. Of course, there's some inspiration there, but there's plenty of others out there that I've looked at and, and drawn some inspiration from, mostly in tech, but not not necessarily only in, in the tech world. And what were you going for? What was the mood you were going for with this person? Yeah, I wanted something playful. He's a character who clearly doesn't need more money. He's beyond wealthy, and he's set for life and for millennia to come for his his descendants so i think he just loves the hustle and the deal the the process of getting in there and, and rolling up his sleeves and, and and fighting for something most people said would be impossible and there's also something about waystar royco that's so delicious to lucas because in his eyes he's very much a self-made man He's not from a legacy empire family. It's on, uh, and there's something so deliciously juicy about taking down this family dynasty. So I think I wanted that to be a driving force for Lucas, and and again the excitement of of shaking things up. And he sees himself in, even though he's incredibly wealthy, as David versus Goliath. Here, it's beyond exciting to him to take this on and to try this, something that no one thought would be possible. He visualizes himself as a, a hand grenade and he wants to get thrown into these banquet halls with senators and, and, and people in gray suits and just like shake things up and have fun and, and fuck with people. So it's like a prankster personality. It definitely is. But it also has a malevolent side to it. There's every now and then the darkness sort of comes over you, whether you're describing the blood thing. And even then I was like, is he lying? Is he not telling the truth? And I've had encounters like this. Yeah, it's there is definitely some darkness to the character. I don't want to make him too frivolous and too happy-go-lucky and fun. I think that is part of who he is. It was important to keep something underneath. There's a sadness there. He touched on it briefly in season three when Roman comes to his villa in Lake Como. And it's this one of the most gorgeous villas you've ever seen. And he paid a ridiculous amount of money for this villa. And he tells Roman that he is stressing out because he doesn't know which bed to choose. Because he now bought the most beautiful home. And how the hell do you find the perfect bed for that perfect home? Right. So he ends up sleeping on a hard mattress on the floor, even though he can buy a fantastic bed <laughs> and sleep well in it. But it's like, is it the best bed? And there was something so interesting about that character trait. Right. He doesn't seem to enjoy any of it at all. No. Like he's in these beautiful settings and he's he could be sitting in a hovel, really. Yeah. And it's also like when they go to this retreat, he looks out at the beautiful mountain range and he's like, yeah, it's, I guess I'm 
supposed to say that this is beautiful because that's what people say, but like it doesn't deeply affect him. It doesn't deeply move him. He's got. I I, I try to avoid putting him on the spectrum or or playing leaning into that. But there's definitely a hint of attention deficit disorder there. He's uh, his mind is incredibly fast and wanders and you need to capture his attention within five seconds because if you don't succeed then he's off thinking about something else what was your first reaction when you learned that lucas was gonna win it all well i not assumed that i had an inclination that it might go with that in that direction because i I didn't really see how the siblings would end up king or queen of it all Mm -hmm. and when jesse told me about the Tom of it all. I thought that was beautiful and really selfishly exciting because I, I love working with Matthew and I was so excited to to have a couple of more nice meaty scenes with him, but also something tragic about, but in a way almost inevitable that the kids don't end up as the successor. He's filling big shoes in Logan, but they also got along, he and Logan. How do you think they're similar? I think Lucas respected Logan. He thought he was a brute and an asshole, but someone who was unfiltered in, in the way Lucas also is. And I think he respected that. And the fact that he was a shark, that he would just go for it and he'd go for the kill. And that he was, I think Lucas saw himself in Logan in many ways. And this obsession about the deal and making the deal and it doesn't really matter if it's we're talking about five dollars or five billion dollars. Like you, you always want to win. And, and he was savvy. He thought Logan was very a worthy opponent. And I going into season four, there's also a bit of there's an opening there that is exciting with a big man gone for Lucas, but it's also a bit disappointing. I think he wanted to go up against this giant, and then he's left with the kids. Right. Who are just like not worthy. And they're clearly in Lucas's eyes only in this position because of birth, being the kids of Logan. So he was kind of setting up for this big showdown. And then it ends up being like he's fighting the featherweights and he's like, come on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, talk about what's specifically Swedish about Matson. Yeah. He keeps talking about. <laughs> Being typically Swedish, but I think it's something, it's a card he likes to play when he goes up against neo capitalist from the United States to be like, hey, I'm just a funny Swede. Like, I'm, I believe in community and equality, but I, I have my doubts if he genuinely feels that way. He's definitely a hyper capitalist. Yes, no question. He's just like them. He's actually just like them in a global perspective. But he also, as I said, they, he has a unique physicality. He hunches over people, he jumps on furniture, he walks barefoot, he pees in front of Roman. How did you think about doing this? He invades space quite a bit. And I have had this issue with lots of tech billionaires. They're always doing yoga in front of me and downward facing dog. And it's a very invasive space thing. And when you say something, you're like, cut it out. They're like, what? What are you talking about? Yeah, it's unsettling and it can throw people off balance a bit, mm-hmm. which could be intentional because it makes makes people insecure because you never know where he's coming from or what his agenda is. So what, and, and he's a big man, but he's also like, if it's a, a negotiation, then one second it feels like he's your best friend and he's opening up and he's telling you deep, dark secrets. And the next 
he feels hostile and then mm-hmm. he's your buddy again. And it's a way to manipulate someone and make someone insecure and unsettled in a way. Did you, you came up, you wanted to do this? Was it written in the character? Or did you think this was a good way to make the other characters unsettled? I wanted Lucas to be a bit of a counterbalance to the Roy's and visually in terms of his aesthetic, his style, they are very monochromatic and it's all very understated. It's expensive cardigans with no logos. And I wanted Lucas to be more uh, of a peacock and more eccentric and more out there. I wanted to instill that in his personality as well and his demeanor and his physicality. I wanted something to come in and be very different and, and disruptive and disturbing to the kids and to other people around him. Right. He doesn't actually do it with Logan. It was interesting. You didn't do it at all. He didn't because, again, there was a very different relationship. And it was also something that grew as we went deeper into season four. And as I got to know Lucas a bit better, a lot of it was we came up with on the day towards the end of season three, when Logan and and Roman comes to the villa, we were trying to figure out what Lucas would wear. And we had a couple of different options. And I wanted, again, something very casual because I thought it'd be interesting knowing that they would look immaculate. And this is one of the biggest media deals ever made. And I thought it'd be interesting if he looked, he was very underdressed for that. We actually weren't able to find the perfect clothes for that scene. So we were looking the morning of, and we found some casual stuff, but nothing that really felt great. So I asked Jonathan Schwartz, the uh, assistant costume designer. I was like, well, the stuff that I came to set wearing is very casual. It's like an old worn t-shirt and plastic like rubber slides. Should we try that? So I actually ended up wearing for that whole, both those scenes, basically what I came to set with that morning. Oh, very nice. The stylings of Alexander. What, are you similar to Matson at all? Are you similar to him? I have a little bit of the, some of that erratic nature, maybe uh, occasionally a hard time st- staying focused. Matson is a version of myself, but like ramped up to 11. Mm-hmm. There's definitely stuff that I can, that I can recognize in myself. And he's an agent of chaos, but it's also, there's something vivacious and fun about like, getting that close to the edge and staring into the abyss and feeling the excitement of that. And there's something about that that I can recognize. Again, not not to the same level as Lucas, but uh, there's a life force in that somehow that, that is quite exciting and thrilling. I bet. So speaking of thrilling, the relationship with Shiv has been developing all season. Um, your scene's really electric. What was your process like with Sarah Snook? We, we found each other very, very quickly in terms of the way we collaborate on set. We would basically just cold read the scene in the makeup chair in the morning once or twice, especially if it's a longer, with lots of banter back and forth. We would just like run it a few times, but again, like cold read it with no emphasis or energy really. And then we would just hang out and have a cup of tea and talk about life. And then we'd save the rest for when the camera was rolling and yeah, there was something quite exciting about that because she is such a phenomenal actor. And my job is very easy when, when I get to work with someone like Sarah, because there's so much going on in her eyes. The nuances, the slight changes from one take to the next makes it incredibly engaging for myself. So I've really loved exploring that 
journey with Sarah. And, and it's such a lovely, interesting relationship because again, it's, they quickly open up to each other. He tells her very private stuff very early on. And then there's also that almost potentially some sexual tension, but we wanted it to leave some ambiguity there, but we didn't want it to, to be like, Ooh, sexual attraction here. They're going to get it on. It's like, we wanted it to be like slightly off. There's some tension there. Is it sexual? Is it not? But, but again, to do it in a subtle way. Do you think her pregnancy impacts how Matson thought about her as, as a woman and a potential CEO? So you're just mad about that drawing, for example. No, he mentions it in nine when she first brings up the idea, the suggestion of a U.S. CEO to play Kate Menken. But I don't think that, no. And again, to your earlier question about him being Swedish, I think mm-hmm. in Sweden you get maternity leave. So right. he's used to that. And I think he's worked a lot. I mean, his company's obviously based in Sweden. So he knows, I don't think that affects him at all. But he is affected by that picture. He said he isn't, but then you could see that he was. The puppet puppeteer yeah. is probably bothering him a bit more. Yeah. And there's nothing worse than being called a puppet that she's behind the curtain pulling the strings. Like, cause it's to him, it's the other way around. Uh, he's using her for specifically what he needs to make this deal happen and go through. And I think it's important for him that people know that, that he is the king. Yeah, he also picked off the weakest link, really, in a lot of ways. And we learn about why he won't pick him in a scene with Tom, that is gross boys being boys moment. Let's listen to this. We're a bit clickety-clickly. You know what I'm saying? Right, like... A little bit... I want to fuck her on a little bit. And I think under... Sorry to get weird, but, like, the right circumstances... I think she'd fuck me too. Oh. Is this making you uncomfortable? I'm sorry if it's weird. Or- no, no, yeah. we're men. Yeah. <laughs> no, we're men. We're men. Yeah, of course. Tom will say anything. Is it weird that he's saying this to Shiv's husband, or why is he doing it here? Testing Tom, presumably. Yeah, it's incredibly weird. And. Oh, I had such such a lovely, lovely time shooting that scene. It's so... Tell me why. It's so well-written. It's so mm-hmm. excruciatingly uncomfortable. It's, I mean, he's telling Tom that he wants to fuck his wife. Mm-hmm. And knowing that he's holding this little nugget of gold in front of Tom's eyes going like, do you want this? Do you want this? And he knows that he can say in this situation, he can say anything because... Tom so desperately wants this position. He knows that he can really lean into that awkwardness and explore it and have fun with it. And it's important for him to have a sycophant in that position. Someone who will be his little lapdog and do exactly what he needs. Tom is proving himself worthy of that as an amazing sycophant by basically saying like, it's fine. It's fine. I get it. You want to fuck her. It's we're men. I can deal with this. And now let's go party. Let's have a great time. Right. He is bothered, but he doesn't let it get to him. You can see it in his eyes. Oh, it's very, very, very clear that he is. And Matson knows that he is, but he gets the answer that he wants. It's not because he finds Shib attractive that he doesn't think she can be the US CEO of the company. It's not about that. I mean, he sends frozen blood bricks to his employees. So he does weird shit. And 
he's not afraid of things being, as he says, clickety clickety. And I think he, in a weird way, thrives on that weirdness, the madness of it all. So that's something he says in that moment, just to see where, how much of a well-trained lap dog he will be. You're fucking talented. So, uh, but also, honestly, I'm not looking for a partner. You know, I'm looking for a front man. Because mm. um, we're going to cut shit close to the bone. We're going to get right fucking in there. It's going to get nasty. Uh, so I need a pain sponge when I'm under the hood doing what I love, you know? Sure. That's kind of what I'm after. So would that be a problem? Nah. No, man. Nah. I could do it. Logan Mark II. Only this time he's fucking sexy. <laughs> oh, dear. Pain sponge. And he's not sexy. <laughs> I need a pain sponge. <laughs> he got everything he wanted from Shiv and then tossed her aside. Tom is just another pain sponge, essentially, what he's looking for. Yeah, he is. There's a very small but quite a crucial moment in episode nine, right before the funeral in the church. It's with Shiv and Greg, and they ask where Tom is, and Matson is standing with Shiv and Greg, and he overhears that Tom is at work. Mm-hmm. Again, it's just a moment of Matson registering that, oh, he's a hard worker. He's not at the funeral of Logan Roy, the, the giant, because he's at work. The fact that he's incredibly loyal as long as you're the top dog, he's loyal to you. And there's something about that that makes him the perfect fit. And it's also and also a bit of a masochist. I mean, the term pain sponge is an unusual word, and it's beautifully written. And of course, he sends blood to Ebba. He's a bit of a sadist. So someone like Tom is a, a relationship because she's pushing back, of course. She's been pushing back. Yeah, and he says that he's not going to get any of that from Tom. His assessment of Tom is that he's... He's drawn to power and money, like a fly to cow shit. And, and so he knows that he's going to stay in my orbit as long as I'm, I'm the sun here. But what does he actually do, this sun? Because he said he'd be under the hood doing what he loves to do, but Ebba says he's not even a real coder. So what does he do? Bullshit is what he does well, but what else does he do? <laughs> yeah. well, I think that's also up for debate, whether he is a genius coder who came up with this code on his own and basically made that fortune from his own basement as a young tech guy. Or if Ebba's version is more true, where like, well, he got lucky. We handed him this and he ran with it and he took it to market. Potentially she has a point. She's also just been, when she says that in episode seven, she's also just been deeply insulted by Matson, where he's like, tries to get Greg to humiliate her and fire her in front of everyone. So there might be some truth to that, but there might also not be, he might be better than she gives him credit for in that moment. Right. Well, although it's complex, he's sort of playing this genius, as you said, playing this genius guy. And, you know, even in real life, uh, people don't realize, for example, Elon Musk did not start Tesla. Other technical people did, but a lot of them we're better at the business of it than the actual coding. Yeah, he might not be the genius coder that he believes he is, but he likes it, like what it says to Tom, that he thinks he can get back under the hood and do more of that and come up with something else, the next big cool thing, whatever that would be. Right. I think he's already a little bored. 
he, he also realizes how easy it is. It's, he said it's about money and gossip. Money and gossip. And, you know, he gave it a go and he won. And then he's like, well, I don't want to run this day to day in like the mundane, boring, like board meetings with people in gray suits. Like, mm-hmm. let Tom do that. And then he can go off and do crazy stuff coding or keep sending blood bricks or find another adventure or whatever that would be. Well, let's talk about the end where he gets his win to cite being a phony to some extent. His numbers in India, he's obviously a manipulator. He's a bit of a P.T. Barnum kind of character. In the end, would he be better at the job than any of the Roys, really? Well, we'll see. Or I guess we won't see because this was the fact. (laughs) (laughs) But but he would be quite bored by the news of it all and the, the clogs of the machine. It's just like, that's not his thing. I think it was more about the acquisition, the fact that they came and they try to take over his company and that he could suddenly have the leverage when the numbers looked better for him to flip it and basically consume them and become the bigger shark. So my final question for you, in episode two, Logan told his kids they are not serious people. Those words have been echoing through the whole season, really. I love you, but you're not serious people. Turns out he's right. I'm wondering, though, is Matson a serious person? He's a clown, but he's a serious clown. (laughs) (laughs) Serious clown. I think we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much, Alexander. I have to say, having known the people you were making an amalgamation of, you've done a beautiful job. Well... Thank you so much, Carrie. I really, really appreciate hearing that. That means a lot. And it was a pleasure talking to you. Likewise. I really enjoyed it. (laughs) Thank you. Joining me now is Jeremy Strong, our very own Kendall Roy. Thanks for coming on our podcast, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. We really couldn't end the series without talking to you, and there's so much to get to here. But let's start at the beginning. What was your first reaction when you first read the script for the last show? I mean, I was gutted by it. I think I had a vague sense of the shape of things. You know, I'd spoken to Jesse before the season. It's one of those episodes for me that almost in miniature contain the whole arc of the series. Kendall goes, in a sense, Icarus flying as close to the sun as he possibly can. And we've seen this character attempt again and again to sort of summit this mountaintop and fall ass backwards down to the bottom of the lowest ravine. And so I think I felt that the journey through this episode was, you know, winding the bow back as far as it could possibly go to reach its final target, which is someone who has finally lost everything. Mm-hmm. He's lost his father. He's lost his morality. He's lost, in a sense, his soul. He's lost his brother and sister. He's lost his children. He's lost love. And he's lost his ambition, which is a defining thing for him in his life. Which he trades everything for. Did you, as a person, Jeremy Strong, think he might win this time? That Kendall really did. I think he it came as a shock to him that he lost. I needed to invest, I think, in in what Kendall was holding on to and what Kendall was believing in. Of course, my job is to be right there in the trenches with him and fight his fight, I guess. And so until the moment when finally I go back into the boardroom and Frank says, you don't have it, 
you know, Jesse set up this incredible dichotomy this season. After my father died on the roof of that boat, he'd written this stage direction. Kendall finds himself, he's looking down towards the Statue of Liberty. At this moment, the sharp tip of the spear of American history and this colossal loss that the worst thing has happened and the, the world is off its axis. And at the same time, he's still there. And he doesn't know if he might be a wraith or a super being. And this idea of the wraith and the super being was something that I think was at play the rest of the season. And so episode 10 starts with Kendall, I think, surmounting his super being. He's in ascendancy. And when that finally fails and the full catastrophe is sort of upon him, then at the end, he is that wraith walking through Battery Park and I think facing the end. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. After four seasons, how do you prepare to say goodbye to this character? What, what do you think about? Part of working on this, and for me, part of acting in general, is sort of clearing your mind entirely and, mm-hmm. and trying to make yourself as much of an empty vessel as you can. So I, I'm not thinking about much at all, but I do feel a sense of, of loss. I mean, I've been so occupied with this and so come to a point of such conviction about Kendall and his needs and wants as if they were my own. Mm-hmm. And so I don't, it's hard to answer that question. I, I, there's a sense of merging and a sense of letting go, which I've done, you know, we finished a while ago now, but, but even you know, I finally watched this two days ago, and it was painful to watch, and it's been reverberating with me. And I, I think the thing that Jesse did so brilliantly in this episode, in a way, I think Kendall, you know, he becomes his father, in a sense. He has the moment of no real person involved, which is what his father said to him on the yacht in Croatia about the cater waiter who died. And at the time, it was a monstrous thing for Kendall to hear, and it sort of showed a heart of darkness, or at least a complete lack of a moral ethical core and a kind of terrible amorality. Mm-hmm. And when Kendall says, it didn't happen, I never got in the car, he's basically willing to cross any lines that are left which he does multiple times this season, especially around his own family. One of the things that was interesting when you're with this character, because of all the characters, it feels like it's you. And when I talked to Karen 
he kept saying, I'm not like this guy. I read, I have children. I'm, you know what I mean? And it's hard when people come up to him. It feels like this character has a lot of you in it, or perhaps not at all. I mean, it's a hard question. It's a very amorphous thing. Mm -hmm. I believe in the kind of work where you have to give something as much density and weight and veracity as possible. And so mm -hmm. I don't know how to do that without using parts of myself. And in a way, you know, I remember Dustin Hoffman in an interview once talked about acting as confessing your deeper crimes, mm -hmm. you know, crimes of the spirit and the conscience. And, you know, a lot of what we're exploring in this show is shadow stuff. So no, I mean, my life is couldn't be more different. I mean, I'm wearing a hat that says books are magic from my local <laughs> bookstore. And, you know, I also have kids and I'm very different from this character. But at work, I guess when I cross that Rubicon, mm -hmm. Kendall is the only thing that matters. And, and it becomes a life and death struggle for me. It's interesting you mentioned Dustin Hoffman because he played so many very dark characters over different parts of his career. And then he played Tootsie. Do you ever imagine you'll be able to play a funny character? Sure. You know, and I, and I have done in the theater years ago. And it's really every role kind of demands different things of you. And what this role demanded was incredibly heavy. I mean, the title of the finale of each season comes from the John Berriman poem. Mm -hmm. And that's a poem that essentially says, let me get it right, but it's something that I've thought about since season one, mm -hmm. that there sat down a thing once on Henry's heart so heavy, and I'm paraphrasing, but after a thousand years, sleepless, weeping, Henry could not make good. And so part of my job as an actor is to attempt to carry that Wait to put a thing that is so heavy that after a thousand years I cannot make good. And that's Kendall's journey. Well, they're all in some level of pain, aren't they? Of course. And that's, you know, the show is about a lot of things. And what I love about this episode in particular and the way we see New York City and the financial district, and mm -hmm. there's this amazing convergence that is incredibly difficult to pull off of collapsing empire and kind of a terminal state, you know, the terminal decadence. There's that great Rolling Stone article about terminal decadence a few years ago and the dying of the light. And he's doing that in a country, about a country, but also about a character. Yeah, you definitely got the sadness at the heart of most of the people I cover in a lot of ways. Many of the people, too many of them. So a really special part of this finale is Kendall, Shiv, and Roman coming together at their mom's house. It was a really surprising and lovely scene. And there, they finally have a real heart-to-heart -heart about who should be CEO. Let's listen to a minute of this. He fucking promised it to me. Promised. When I was seven, he sat me down at the candy kitchen in Bridgehampton, and he fucking promised it to me. Seven years old. Like, can you imagine? Yeah. Picks or it didn't happen. That was messed up. Like, he shouldn't have done that. No. He shouldn't have said that. I'm simply saying he said a lot of things, and he said them to me first. Yeah, and he said it to me last. Well, that's something. But you have an image of a seven-year-old getting promised a CEO job, which he said it's a, a bad thing for him to have done to him, because he put that in his head, I guess. Yeah. Does yeah. this memory change your understanding of Kendall? Did it at all? Yeah, I mean, you know, Jesse had and the writers had written a timeline for Kendall back when we started this. So I've always had 
a sense of his life, his whole life. Mm -hmm. This memory crystallized in a beautiful way in that moment. And we talked about where that might have happened. And, you know, that seemed like a place where that might have happened on Route 27 out in the Hamptons mm -hmm. where all those kids go. But that moment of incongruity of this innocence of the candy kitchen and this moment where his father says, one day this will be yours, mm -hmm. and that becoming the defining drive of his life. I remember reading in Chekhov's short stories, he's, he writes, tell me what a person wants and I'll tell you who they are. Mm -hmm. And Kendall has always had this singularity of wanting. It's ultimately the tragedy, I think, of this show is in a sense Kendall's tragedy. It's the tragedy of, of everyone. But we followed him as a protagonist through these four seasons. That he doesn't even know what he wants. He was, it was imposed upon him. No, it's like he doesn't even want it. I remember reading one of the things I read early on was Andre Agassi's autobiography, Open, which is an incredible book. And he writes about what he called the pain of playing. You know, his father mm -hmm. put this ball machine, I think called the Dragon, I might be mm -hmm. wrong, in their backyard in Las Vegas and just forced him to hit balls until he was blue in the face and he never actually wanted it. And I thought about that a lot. And I think that is the tragedy that this was imposed upon him. And it, in a sense, shaped and misshaped and deformed his life. He could never free himself from that objective. When we first talked about the show, Adam McKay and Jesse Armstrong and I, we talked about Festin, the Thomas Vinterberg film about trauma that this is really about family trauma and, and legacy in the Trojan horse of, you know, a show about legacy media. Right. And with a lot of cashmere and planes, but go ahead. Yeah. And with a lot of, yeah, with a lot of cashmere and planes, but ultimately it is about legacy media, but it's also about the legacy of, of damage and the legacy of trauma. And when those things have been scaled up in such a way that they have major repercussions in the world. I mean, I think episode eight for me is in a sense a pinnacle of the writing because we see this, you know, for personal reasons in a way, make a decision that imperils our democracy. It's really interesting. Trauma is absolutely how I cover most of the people I cover. You find the trauma and you find the everything really much. The wound, yeah. It's an addiction to want to run this family company. It's not good for him. No, no. I mean, I don't even know if that's a metric that, you know, being good for him or, or you know, success is a virtue in this family, the credo of winning. And I think at the beginning of the season, Kendall says to his brother and sister, I need something super fucking absorbing in my life. Like he needs a Matterhorn to climb because if he's not doing that, if he doesn't have something, then I think he will backslide into a whirlpool of negativity, of addiction, of suicidality. And so the character is always on thin ice and needs to find something to buoy himself and keep himself above water. And this is it, this is it for now. This is, there's certainly been the replacement since he had those addiction problems at the beginning of the, of the show. Of course. No, it's a substitutive addiction. Mm -hmm. I mean, work addiction is a real thing. And it's something I even understand. I mean, I think many of us do in this culture. Why do you think Shiv and Roman anoint him king? Why did they agree to give it to him? What convinces them? That that he has this desperation, this jonesing for this job that they don't have? I don't even think it's the desperation. I, I mean, maybe I'm deluded as Kendall, but I guess I think if they look at the facts objectively and 
and squarely. He is actually the person most suited for the job. And he, he did demonstrate a level of, I would say, competence in the Living Plus presentation to mm-hmm. investors on that Investor's Day presentation. While that was, you know, for me also, another one of the kind of stations of the cross of like the willingness to perjure himself and to edit words into my father's mouth that he didn't say, and the cynicism of that presentation. What I say in the dressing room to Roman, it makes you lose your faith in capitalism. You can say anything, but he's good at it. And I think they recognize, I think they saw that. They reluctantly crown him king. You had a scene of you hanging out in the kitchen making the gross meal for for a king that they did as kids, obviously. What was in the mystery smoothie you drank? It wasn't all those things, was it? <laughs> it was all those things. Oh, yeah. You drank that. It was. We did it only a few times, and I went outside and retched and jumped in the ocean and washed it off my hair. And I, Yeah, I did drink it. Yeah. You really are a method actor. Okay, I'll drink it. I wouldn't know how not to drink it. He wants it that badly that he's going to drink whatever that is. Right. Uh, but it was, it was disgusting. And the dynamic is loose and fun, getting caught by their mother late at night. It was wonderful. Was that fun to play that side? It was really interesting to watch. You know, it was one of those times where I felt allowed to really just enjoy, you know, Kieran and Sarah and I have been through so much together. I love them so much. I respect them so much. Their work this season has just blown me away. But often Kendall is at variance with them, or there is just so much tension and friction, and that's something that I need to take on board myself. It also made you see that Kendall could be happy. Just on the dock, you know, she says, you can smile, bitch. And they say, it's happy Ken. And in a way, this is what this man needed Mm -hmm. to be happy. And so he gets it for a moment. And that happiness is carried into that kitchen and the sort of night kitchen scene. And it was a wonderful night. And, And we wrapped the show at the end of that scene. That was the final thing we did. Oh, wow. Wow. And also, there was also a scene where you're floating on the dock in the water. You do feel free. All these water scenes with you, and I'll talk about the last one at the end, they're different. One was felt suicidal. The other one, he's floating in the ocean. There was another one where you're floating in the ocean. This one, you're floating on the dock. Water plays a big role in, in your character for some reason. Yeah. The imagery. That's right. In California, there were these big swells at Zuma Beach. It was winter. And going into that ocean and floating with a sort of ebullience and triumph of that episode. And then in Barbados, as you say, the freedom. And I was sitting on that dock. Kieran and Sarah were shooting their scene on the beach. And I was I was sitting there looking up at a sky full of stars and, and feeling the alignment of everything for this character. And, and it is, it's, it's as happy as this character ever gets. He's manic most of the time when he's happy. Yeah, I guess you could say that, yeah. But not this time. He's not manic here. That's what was different. No, in a sense, it tells me, or I discovered through doing it, that actually this is the thing he needs to make everything right in his life. And so they give that to him, and then they take it away from him. It's a beautiful moment of connection. It doesn't last long, as you said. In true succession faction, it blows up in the boardroom. The big final scene between you, Shiv, and Roman is intense. Let's listen to a quick moment of that. Here's the thing. I am like a cog built to fit only one machine. If you don't let me do this, I mean, it, it, it's the one thing I know how to do. Well, it's not all about you. I know. 
yet you are not the most important one. I, I, I don't think I am. Yes, you do. You do. You do. You fucking do. You do. How do you get into the raw emotional space with the scenes? There's so many of these very emotional scenes. Oh, fundamentally, that's the writing. That's just mm-hmm. Jesse Armstrong's just astonishingly brilliant writing because he's writing with such understanding of human beings and their complexities and fallibilities and pathos. And there's such a subterranean level underneath the writing. Right. Was this fault between the three of them bound to happen? The vote hinges on Shiv, especially, and she wavers. Why do you think that is? I think they just can't tolerate seeing Kendall win, in a sense. I think what they perceive as his sort of grandiosity and self-importance and putting his feet up on dad's desk, Mm -hmm. they can't stomach it. It's what Shiv says. I mean, I think... It's also, you know, something I say to Shiv in in episode eight, maybe the poison drips through Mm -hmm. when I'm trying to, I think, wrestle over the choice to make in the election. I think that they perceive that that is in fact true. Is that payback for that decision he made from her? I think there is payback happening. And maybe they think that Madsen is the lesser of two evils. Maybe they think I will be, you know, the Mad King. It knocked the wind out of me. It felt unjust. And the character after that piece we just listened to mm-hmm. sort of loses it in a way we never have seen him lose it, which also reinforces that, in fact, you know, Logan is my middle name. It reinforces that that is innate and that is part of his DNA. She also says he's not very good at the job. Well, I, I, I don't believe her and I, and I don't think she means that. I think he is good at the job, and I think he could do it. So let's listen to that. Let's listen to that fight. Shiv, don't do this. No, you can't man. do this, no, Shiv. No, absolutely yes. no. not, man. No. Absolutely not. No. Why? No, why? What, just... I love you. I really, I love you, but I cannot fucking stomach you. This is fucking disgusting. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. You're disgusting. You're fucking heartless. What? It's fucking nuts. It doesn't even make any sense. I'M THE ELDEST BOY! <laughs> I AM THE ELDEST BOY! You're not! And you know, it, this, it mattered to him. He wanted this to go on. Well, I mean, she's the bloodline, though. What? I'm the, I'm the bloodline? We're all the fucking No, bloodline. I just mean if you're gonna play that card, Dad's view was yours weren't real. What the fuck did you just say? Well, just not real. Real. Um, well, that's just what Dad said. I'm just saying what Dad said. Well, don't say it, you fucking cuck. Wow. Whoa. Kids aren't real. What do you think is happening there? Why do that right there? Yeah, what's happening there? I mean, I think it's just the release of of years of vitriol and animosity and jealousies and envy. And I think, you know, Jesse doesn't really believe, I think philosophically, I don't think he believes that people change. Uh, I think he's put us all in a kind of doom loop And that's what we're also seeing happen here. And certainly for Kendall, the ending of the series is a doom loop. Right. It's not that dissimilar from the ending of episode six in season one, where he attempts a coup, makes it to the boardroom, leaves the boardroom having lost, Mm -hmm. and walks into traffic on Broadway. And I think Jesse's making a sort of profound point that people don't change, that they are kind of stuck in this doom loop. 
And the same thing about his role as a dad. He claims he wants full custody. He's never with the kids. Maybe he's scared of becoming like his father. Yeah, I mean, you know, Nate says to him at the tailgate party, mm-hmm. you're not Logan, and that's a good thing. There's a spike in him, in his heart, that divides him. He both wants to be his father and doesn't want to be his father, wants to be his own man. And he does, I think, have goodness in him, or did, you know? I mean, I think the scene at the end of season three, when we're sitting at the table in Italy, mm-hmm. and I say to my father, you've won because you're corrupt, and so is the world, mm-hmm. and I'm better than you. I think he believes that, and maybe he's even standing on moral ground at that point. But by the end of season four, he's lost that high ground completely. Lost it completely. And she also, besides Roman bringing up the kids, she she brings up the dead kid from earlier seasons. That's right. Well, that's what I mean by arriving at a no real person involved moment. The fact that I can just in a very kind of blithe way that that never happened. And it was just something I said and I never got in the car. And one first thing you do is when you grab his head, Roman was abused by Logan. Kendall's now doing what his father would do. I think that is what's happening in that scene. It's a kind of traumatic reenactment. You know, the the love language that we had as children was essentially a language of neglect and abuse. And so we, we were not given nurture as children. You know, our mother, I find the character of our mother almost more painful than, than our father in some ways. I would agree. And so this is the way that we saw our father express himself through violence and through abuse and through sort of negation. And so this is what we're all doing to each other. And it, it, it's sort of, this is the fruit that they've borne. Right. So after everything falls apart, Roman tells Kendall, we are bullshit. What does Kendall think about that? Because it sounds an awful lot like Logan's line earlier in the season, you are not serious people, which is my, one of my favorite lines of all time. Well, I'll tell you, in that room, I certainly couldn't accept that. And it's why I had to keep going. Walking back into the boardroom was something that just happened. You know, it was meant to end with Roman and I in the room. But I still felt that Kendall had something left in the tank. And so Mark Mylod, who's just such a brilliant director and a brilliant collaborator, and Jesse, I just kept going and they followed me with the camera and we went back into the room. And you see this sort of, I mean, for me, it's an extinction level event that happens. And I don't think we used it in the show, but you know, sometimes Jesse would give people off-camera lines. Mm-hmm. And I think Frank said to me, you don't have it, you never had it. And when Frank said you never had it, which we don't hear in the show, but which I heard in the room, that mm-hmm. did something to me that just stopped me. It just stopped me in my tracks, and I guess the life just went out of me. Yeah. Do you think he does realize he's bullshit? I think he realizes, maybe not that he's bullshit, but that he never had it. That this entire thing was a fallacious thing and was a fantasy. And the whole thing deflates and he goes from the super being to the wraith. So let's talk about that final scene, speaking of which. Tom gets the CEO gig. Shiv is relegated to the wife status. Roman is the Roy doing photo ops for the Gojo deal. Well, and Roman also, I love that Roman ends at this bar where he, you sort of feel like he's going to be okay. That's what I felt. Like he's finally liberated from it. Yeah, agreed. 
this last shot, I want you to go into it, the final shot with Colin in the background again by water. I felt like he was going to jump. Well, I, in one of the takes, I climbed over the, the barrier. I sat on the bench, and it, it always, to me, felt like there was nowhere, there's no coming back from this. And I looked at these waves, and it was so windy that day and so cold, and there was some piece of metal clanging Mm-hmm. And it was this terrible sound, and I sort of couldn't bear it. And I stood up and walked slowly to the barrier that was set up there and climbed over it. And I didn't really know what I planned to do. And the actor playing Colin saw me and ran and stopped me from doing it. Do you think that was a good choice? I, I think actually him sitting there and not knowing was very... I mean, I'm sure Jesse's choice is better. And and in a way, I think you see the intentionality in the character. I mean, you said you felt like he was going to go in, and I did. I tried to. I've been sitting with that poem for a long time, and there's something in the Berriman poem. I sent Jesse and Mark a text after we filmed the scene. They sat down a thing once on Henry's heart so heavy if he had a hundred years and more and weeping sleepless and all them time Henry could not make good, starts again always in Henry's ears, a chime. And that chime, the clanging, came out of that poem. And then Jesse wrote back immediately, and this is Jesse's mind, a passage from T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, part four, which mm-hmm. is called Death, Death by Water. Oh, wow, you guys are doing the heavy pose, but go ahead. There's a line in it that says entering the whirlpool. And Jesse wrote back to me, entering the whirlpool. Wow. And, and that's what the ending is for me. Even if he doesn't physically jump. So you, it's not a happy ending from your perspective. It is a completely tragic ending from my perspective. And this idea, uh, you know, the title, is it with open eyes? Is that, what the, is that what the episode is called? Yeah. Those eyes are not Kendall's eyes. Those eyes in the poem are the eyes of this reproachful face in his mind that is staring back at him. It's all the things he's done, the cater waiter who he killed. It's all the people that he's that he has betrayed. I can't answer who that face is staring back at him ghastly with open eyes, but but it's all of it. So could there be a happy ending for Kendall? He's free of the company. He I think that Jesse maybe intended that in the writing, you know, Mm -hmm. the sense that Kendall has lost, but maybe he's free and maybe he's going to keep walking. I I guess I felt with everything in my body that there is no coming back from this. Oh, wow. I would agree with you on that, I have to say. The others, definitely Roman and Shiv is is already plotting right there in the car. She was just plotting in the car. Yeah, I think that they'll be able to keep going. I think that Kendall has just slowly mortgaged off everything and has nothing left to live for. And you've sold to a clown, too. That jumping that Alexander Sarsgaard did at the end. He's fantastic. Yeah, it's terrifying. So last question. Now that we've seen all of Succession, I know it sounds like a broad question, but what does the show mean to you, thinking back on it? That's a hard question. The show is Shakespearean in scope. You know, it's it's like... The Swiftian satire, but it, it is a profound document and tapestry of 
of life and contemporary life at this moment in our country and in our history, having been a part of something that feels central and meaningful, mm-hmm. that's something that I feel very proud of and grateful for. What does it mean? I mean, there's something that I've thought about since we started making this and that I've said. There's this thing I read that Jung said that where love is absent, power fills the vacuum. And to me, that's what the show has always been about. Yeah. And I don't think Jesse is offering any kind of prescription, or, but that to me would have been the thing that could have helped and maybe even saved these people. And the vortex of power, which is drawing them all in, and which is drawing us in as a nation, is you know, is a clear and present danger. And that's, that's what it means to me. Fascinating. I do have one more last question. What are you going to do next? A rom-com? <laughs> Drew Barrymore? <laughs> you and Drew Barrymore in a rom-com. A silly rom <laughs> I am going to do, I'm looking at it right in front of me, I am going to do Ibsen's play, An Enemy of the People, on Broadway. Oh, wow. That's, not, that's a light one. Yeah, another romp in the park. So I'm going to do that next year with my friend Sam Gold, who's an incredible director on Broadway, and that's not for a little while. I'm going to take a break now. I feel pretty pretty spent. That's amazing. Wow. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us, Jeremy, and congratulations on an incredible finale. Thank you so much. It's great to talk to you. I want to thank my guests today, Alexander Skarsgård and Jeremy Strong. It's hard to say goodbye, but thankfully, even though Succession might be over, the podcast is not quite over yet. Part two of our supersized podcast finale, which is fitting for a series like Succession, features director Mark Mylod. It's coming later this week, and trust me, you won't want to miss it. The official HBO Succession podcast is a production of HBO and Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers at Pineapple are Barry Finkel and Gabrielle Lewis. Our producers are Elliot Adler, Ben Goldberg, and Noah Camuso. Our editor is Darby Maloney. Engineering and mixing by Hannes Brown. Production music is courtesy of HBO. Special thanks to Michael Gluckstadt, Kenya Reyes, and Savon Slater at HBO Podcasts. And I am, of course, Kara Swisher. Want to know the most upsetting part of the finale to me? Hearing the phrase, face eggs. It was something about eyes. They just kind of, oof, revoked uh, me. Eyes? Like, like human eyes that we all have? I don't like to think of all these blobs of jelly rolling around in your heads. Face eggs. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show, like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. 
Hack Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max.